Chapter Nine of the Hidden Hand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget. The Hidden Hand by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter Nine. Mara Rock. There sits upon her matron face a tender and a thoughtful grace, though very still for great distress, hath left this patient mournfulness. Beside an old rocky road leading from the town of Staunton out to the forest-crowned hills beyond, stood alone a little grey stone cottage, in the midst of a garden enclosed by a low mouldering stone wall. A few gnarled and twisted fruit trees, long past bearing, stood around the house that their leafless branches could not be said to shade. A little wooden gate led up an old paved walk to the front door, on each side of which were large windows. In this poor cottage, remote from other neighbors, dwelt the friends of Herbert Grayson, the widow Rock, and her son Traverse. No one knew who she was, or whence, or why she came. Some fifteen years before she had appeared in town, clothed in rusty mourning, and accompanied by a boy of about two years of age. She had rented that cottage, furnished it poorly, and had settled there, supporting herself and child by needlework. At the time that Dr. Grayson died, and his widow and son were left perfectly destitute, and it became necessary for Mrs. Grayson to look out for a humble lodging where she could find the united advantages of cheapness, cleanliness, and pure air, she was providentially led to inquire at the cottage of the widow Rock, whom she found only too glad to increase her meagre income by letting half her little house to such unexceptionable tenants as the widow Grayson and her son and thus commenced between the two poor young women and the two boys an acquaintance that ripened into friendship, and thence into that devoted love so seldom seen in this world. Their households became united. One fire, one candle, and one table served the little family, and thus considerable expense was saved, as well as much social comfort gained. And when the lads grew too old to sleep with their mothers, one bed held the two boys, and the other accommodated the two women and despite toil, want, care, the sorrow for the dead, and the neglect of the living, this was a loving, contented, and cheerful little household. How much of their private history these women might have confided to each other was not known, but it was certain that they continued fast friends up to the time of the death of Mrs. Grayson, after which the widow Rock assumed a double burden, and became a second mother to the orphan boy, until Herbert himself, ashamed of taxing her small means, ran away, as he had said, and went to sea. Every year had Herbert written to his kind foster-mother, and his dear brother, as he called Traverse. And at the end of every prosperous voyage, when he had a little money, he had sent them funds. But not always did these letters or remittances reach the widow's cottage, and long seasons of intense anxiety would be suffered by her for the fate of her sailor-boy, as she always called Herbert. Only three times in all these years had Herbert found time and means to come down and see them, and that was long ago. It was many months over two years since they had even received a letter from him. And now the poor widow and her son were almost tempted to think that their sailor-boy had quite forsaken them. It is near the close of a late autumnal evening that I shall introduce you, reader, into the interior of the widow's cottage. You enter by the little wooden gate— pass up the mouldering paved walk, between the old leafless lilac bushes, and pass through the front door, right into a large, clean, but poor-looking sitting-room and kitchen. Everything was old, though neatly and comfortably arranged about this room. A faded homemade carpet covered the floor, a threadbare crimson curtain hung before the window, a rickety walnut table, dark with age, sat under the window against the wall. Old walnut chairs were placed to each side of it. 
Old plated candlesticks, with the silver all worn off, graced the mantelpiece. A good fire, a cheap comfort in that well-wooded country, blazed upon the hearth. On the right side of the fireplace, a few shelves contained some well-worn books, a flute, a few minerals and other little treasures belonging to Travers. On the left hand, there was a dresser containing the little delftware, tea-service, and plates and dishes of the small family. Before the fire, with her knitting in her hand, sat Mara Rock, watching the kettle as it hung singing over the blaze and the oven of biscuits that sat baking upon the hearth. Mara Rock was at this time about thirty-five years of age, and of a singularly refined and delicate aspect for one of her supposed rank. Her little form, slight and flexible as that of a young girl, was clothed in a poor but neat black dress, relieved by a pure white collar around her throat. Her jet-black hair was parted plainly over her low, sweet brow, brought down each side her thin cheeks, and gathered into a bunch at the back of her shapely little head. Her face was oval, with regular features and pale olive complexion, serious lips, closed in pensive thought, and soft, dark-brown eyes, full of tender affection and sorrowful memories, and too often cast down in meditation beneath the heavy shadows of their long, thick eyelashes, completed the melancholy beauty of a countenance not often seen among the hard-working children of toil. Mara Rock was a very hard-working woman, sewing all day long and knitting through the twilight, and then again resuming her needle by candlelight, and sewing until midnight. And yet Mara Rock made but a poor and precarious living for herself and son. Needlework, so ill-paid in large cities, is even worse paid in the country towns. And, though the cottage hearth was never cold, the widow's meals were often scant. Lately her son Travers, who occasionally earned a trifle of money, by doing, with all his might, whatever his hand could find to do, had been engaged by a grocer in the town to deliver his goods to his customers during the illness of the regular porter, for which, as he was only a substitute, he received the very moderate sum of twenty-five cents a day. This occupation took Travers from home at daybreak in the morning, and kept him absent until eight o'clock at night. Nevertheless, the widow always gave him a hot breakfast before he went out in the morning, and kept a comfortable supper waiting for him at night. It was during this last social meal that the youth would tell his mother all that had occurred in his world outside the home that day, and all that he expected to come to pass the next, for Travers was wonderfully hopeful and sanguine. And after supper the evening was generally spent by Travers, in hard study beside his mother's sewing-stand. Upon this evening, when the widow sat waiting for her son, he seemed to be detained longer than usual. She almost feared that the biscuits would be burned, or, if taken from the oven, be cold before he would come to enjoy them. But, just as she had looked for the twentieth time at the little black walnut clock that stood between those old-plated candlesticks on the mantelpiece, the sound of quick, light, joyous footsteps was heard resounding along the stony street. The gate was opened, a hand laid upon the door-latch, and the next instant entered a youth, some seventeen years of age, clad in a homespun suit, whose coarse material and clumsy make could not disguise his noble form or graceful air. He was like his mother, with the same oval face, regular features, and pale olive complexion, with the same full, serious lips, the same dear, tender brown eyes, shaded by long black lashes, and the same wavy, jet-black hair. But there was a difference in the character of their faces. Where hers showed refinement and melancholy, his exhibited strength and cheerfulness. His loving brown eyes, instead of drooping sadly under the shadow of their lashes, looked you brightly and confidently fully in the face. 
and lastly his black hair curled crisply around a broad high forehead, royal with intellect. Such was the boy that entered the room and came joyously forward to his mother, clasping his arms around her neck, saluting her on both cheeks, and then laughingly claiming his childish privilege of kissing the pretty little black mole on her throat. "'Will you never have outgrown your babyhood, Traverse?' asked his mother, smiling at his affectionate ardor. "'Yes, dear little mother, and everything but the privilege of fondling you. That feature of babyhood I never shall outgrow,' exclaimed the youth, kissing her again with all the ardor of his true and affectionate heart, and starting up to help her set the table. He dragged the table out from under the window, spread the cloth, and placed the cups and saucers upon it, while his mother took the biscuits from the oven and made the tea, so that in ten minutes from the moment in which he entered the room, mother and son were seated at their frugal supper. "'I suppose, to-morrow being Saturday, you will have to get up earlier than usual to go to the store?' said his mother. "'No, ma'am,' replied the boy, looking up brightly, as if he were telling a piece of good news. "'I am not wanted any longer.' Mr. Spicer's own man has got well again, and returned to work. "'So you are discharged,' said Mrs. Rock, sadly. "'Yes, ma'am, but just think how fortunate that is, for I shall have a chance to-morrow of mending the fence, and nailing up the gate, and sawing wood enough to last you a week, besides doing all the other little odd jobs that have been waiting for me so long. And then on Monday I shall get more work.' "'I wish I were sure of it,' said the widow, whose hopes had long since been too deeply crushed to permit her ever to be sanguine. When their supper was over, and the humble service cleared away, the youth took his books and applied himself to study on the opposite side of the table, at which his mother sat busied with her needlework. And there fell a perfect silence between them. The widow's mind was anxious, and her heart heavy. Many cares never communicated to cloud the bright sunshine of her boy's soul oppressed hers. The rent had fallen fearfully behindhand, and the landlord threatened, unless the money could be raised to pay him, to seize their furniture and eject them from the premises. And how this money was to be raised she could not see at all. True, this meek Christian had often in her sad experience proved God's special providence at her utmost need, and now she believed in his ultimate interference, but in what manner he would now interpose she could not imagine, and her faith grew dim, and her hope dark and her love cold. While she was revolving these sad thoughts in her mind, Traverse suddenly thrust aside his books, and, with a deep sigh, turned to his mother and said, "'Mother, what do you think has ever become of Herbert?' "'I do not know. I dread to conjecture. It has now been nearly three years since we heard from him,' exclaimed the widow, with the tears welling up in her brown eyes. "'You think he has been lost at sea, mother, but I don't. I simply think his letters have been lost.' And somehow, to-night, I can't fix my mind on my lesson, or keep it off Herbert. He is running in my head all the time. If I were fanciful now, I should believe that Herbert was dead, and his spirit was about me. "'Good heavens, mother, whose step is that?' suddenly exclaimed the youth, starting up and assuming an attitude of intense listening, as a firm and ringing step, attended by a peculiar whistling, approached up the street, and entered the gate." "'It is Herbert! It is Herbert!' cried Traverse, starting across the room and tearing open the door, with a suddenness that threw the entering guest forward upon his own bosom. But his arms were soon around the newcomer, clasping him closely there, while he breathlessly exclaimed, "'Oh, Herbert, I am so glad to see you! Oh, Herbert, why didn't you come or write all this long time? Oh, Herbert, how long have you been ashore? I was just talking about you.' "'Dear fellow, dear fellow, I have come to make you glad at last, and to repay all your great kindness. 
"'But now let me speak to my second mother,' said Herbert, returning Traverse's embrace, and then gently extricating himself, and going to where Mrs. Rock stood up, pale, trembling, and incredulous. She had not yet recovered from the great shock of his unexpected appearance. "'Dear mother, won't you welcome me?' asked Herbert, going up to her. His words dissolved the spell that bound her. Throwing her arms around his neck and bursting into tears, she exclaimed, "'Oh, my son, my son, my sailor-boy, my other child! How glad I am to have you back once more! Welcome? To be sure you are welcome! Is my own circulating blood welcome back to my heart? But sit you down and rest by the fire. I will get your supper directly.' "'Sweet mother, do not take the trouble. I supped twenty miles back, where the stage stopped. And will you take nothing at all?' "'Nothing, dear mother, but your kind hand to kiss again and again,' said the youth, pressing that hand to his lips, and then allowing the widow to put him into a chair right in front of the fire. Travers sat on one side of him, and his mother on the other, each holding a hand of his, and gazing on him with mingled incredulity, surprise, and delight, as if, indeed, they could not realize his presence except by devouring him with their eyes.' and for the next half-hour all their talk was as wild and incoherent as the conversation of long-parted friends suddenly brought together is apt to be. It was all made up of hasty questions, hurried one upon another, so as to leave but little chance to have any of them answered, and wild exclamations and disjointed sketches of travel, interrupted by frequent ejaculations. Yet through all the widow and her son, perhaps through the quickness of their love as well as of their intellect, managed to get some knowledge of the past three years of their sailor-boy's life and adventures, and they entirely vindicated his constancy when they learned how frequently and regularly he had written, though they had never received his letters. "'And now,' said Herbert, looking from side to side, from mother to son, "'I have told you all my adventures. I am dying to tell you something that concerns yourselves.' "'That concerns us?' exclaimed mother and son in a breath." "'Yes, ma'am, yes, sir, that concerns you both eminently. "'But, first of all, let me ask how you are getting on at the present time.' "'Oh, as usual,' said the widow, smiling, "'for she did not wish to dampen the spirits of her sailor-boy. "'As usual, of course. "'Travers has not been able to accomplish his darling purpose of entering the seminary yet, "'but—' "'But I'm getting on quite well with my education for all that,' interrupted Travers, "'for I belong to Dr. Day's Bible class in the Sabbath school, "'which is a class of young men, you know.' And the doctor is so good as to think that I have some mental gifts worth cultivating, so he does not confine his instructions to me to the Bible class alone, but permits me to come to him in his library at Willow Heights for an hour twice a week when he examines me in Latin and algebra, and sets me new exercises, which I study and write out at night, so that you see I am doing very well. Indeed, the doctor, who is a great scholar, and one of the trustees and examiners of the seminary, says that he does not know any young man there, with all the advantages of the institution around him, who is getting along so fast as Traverses, with all the difficulties he has to encounter. The doctor says it is all because Traverse is profoundly in earnest, and that one of these days he will be— There, mother, don't repeat all the doctor's kind speeches. He only says such things to encourage a poor boy in the pursuit of knowledge under difficulties, said Travers, blushing and laughing. We'll be an honor to his kindred, country, and race, said Herbert, finishing the widow's incomplete quotation. It was something like that indeed, she said, nodding and smiling. You do me proud, said Travers, touching his forelock with comic gravity. But, inquired he, suddenly changing his tone and becoming serious, "'Was it not, is it not noble in the doctor, to give up an hour of his precious time twice a week, for no other cause than to help a poor, struggling fellow like me up the ladder of learning?' 
"'I should think it was. "'But he is not the first noble heart I ever heard of,' said Herbert, "'with an affectionate glance that directed the compliment. "'Nor is his the last that you will meet with. "'I must tell you the good news now.' "'Oh, tell it, tell it. "'Have you got a ship of your own, Herbert?' "'No, nor is it about myself that I am anxious to tell you. "'Mrs. Rock, you may have heard that I had a rich uncle, "'whom I had never seen, "'because from the time of my dear mother's marriage to that of her death, "'she and her brother, this very uncle, had been estranged?' "'Yes,' said the widow, speaking in a very low tone, "'and bending her head over her work. "'Yes, I have heard so, "'but your mother and myself seldom alluded to the subject. "'Exactly. Mother never was fond of talking of him.' "'Well, when I came ashore and went, as usual, up to the old Washington house, "'who should I meet with, all of a sudden, but this rich uncle? "'He had come to New York to claim a little girl whom I happened to know, "'and who happened to recognize me and name me to him. "'Well, I knew him only by his name, "'but he knew me by both my name and by my likeness to his sister, "'and received me with wonderful kindness, "'offered me a home under his roof, "'and promised for me an appointment to West Point. "'Are you not glad? Say, are you not glad?' he exclaimed, jocosely clapping his hand on Traverse's knee, and then turning around and looking at his mother. "'Oh, yes, indeed, I am very glad, Herbert,' exclaimed Traverse, heartily grasping and squeezing his friend's hand. "'Yes, yes, I am indeed sincerely glad of your good fortune, dear boy,' said the widow, but her voice was very faint, and her head bent still lower over her work. "'Ha, ha, ha, I knew you'd be glad for me, but now I require you to be glad for yourselves. Now listen,' When I told my honest old uncle, for he is honest, with all his eccentricities, when I told him of what friends you had been to me— "'Oh, no, you did not—you did not mention us to him,' cried the widow, suddenly starting up and clasping her hands together, while she gazed in an agony of entreaty into the face of the speaker. "'Why not? Why in the world not? Was there anything improper in doing so?' inquired Herbert in astonishment, while Travers himself gazed in amazement at the excessive and unaccountable agitation of his mother. "'Why, mother, why shouldn't he have mentioned us? "'Was there anything strange or wrong in that?' inquired Travers. "'No, oh, no, certainly not. "'I forgot. It was so sudden,' said the widow, "'sinking back in her chair and struggling for self-control. "'Why, mother, what in the world is the meaning of this?' asked her son. "'Nothing, nothing, boy. "'Only we are poor folks, and should not be forced upon the attention of a wealthy gentleman,' "'she said with a cold, unnatural smile, "'putting her hand to her brow and striving to gain composure.' Then, as Herbert continued silent and amazed, she said to him, "'Go on, go on. You were saying something about my—about Major Warfield's kindness to you. Go on.' And she took up her work and tried to sew, but she was as pale as death, and trembling all over at the same time that every nerve was acute with the tension to catch every word that might fall from the lips of Herbert. "'Well,' recommenced the young sailor, I was just saying that when I mentioned you and Travers to my uncle, and told him how kind and disinterested you had been to me, you being like a mother and Travers like a brother, he was really moved almost to tears. Yes, I declare I saw the raindrops glittering in his tempestuous old orbs as he walked the floor, muttering to himself, Poor woman! Good, excellent woman! While Herbert spoke, the widow dropped her work without seeming to know that she had done so. Her fingers twitched so nervously that she had to hold both hands clasped together, and her eyes were fixed in intense anxiety upon the face of the youth as she repeated, "'Go on! Oh, go on! What more did he say when you talked of us?' "'He said everything that was kind and good. He said that he could not do too much to compensate you for the past.' "'Oh, did he say that?' exclaimed the widow breathlessly. 
"'Yes, and a great deal more, that all he could do for you or your son was but a sacred debt he owed you. Oh, he acknowledged it, he acknowledged it. Thank heaven. Oh, thank heaven. Go on, Herbert, go on.' He said that he would in future take the whole charge of the boy's advancement in life, and that he would place you above want forever, that he would, in fact, compensate for the past by doing you and yours full justice. "'Thank heaven! Oh, thank heaven!' exclaimed the widow, no longer concealing her agitation, but throwing down her work, and starting up, and pacing the floor in excess of joy. "'Mother!' said Traverse, uneasily, going to her and taking her hand. "'Mother, what is the meaning of all of this? Do come and sit down.' She immediately turned and walked back to the fire, and, resting her hands upon the back of the chair, bent upon them a face radiant with youthful beauty. Her cheeks were brightly flushed, her eyes were sparkling with light, her whole countenance resplendent with joy. She scarcely seemed twenty years of age. "'Mother, tell us what it is,' pleaded Traverse, who feared for her sanity. "'Oh, boys, I am so happy. At last, at last, after eighteen years of patient hoping against hope, I shall go mad with joy.' "'Mother,' said Herbert softly, "'Children, I am not crazy. I know what I am saying, though I did not intend to say it. And you shall know, too. But first I must ask Herbert another question. Herbert, are you very sure that he, Major Warfield, knew who we were?' "'Yes, indeed. Didn't I tell him all about you? Your troubles, your struggles, your disinterestedness, and all your history since ever I knew you?' answered Herbert, who was totally unconscious that he had left Major Warfield in ignorance of one very important fact, her surname. "'Then you are sure he knew who he was talking about?' "'Of course he did. He could not have failed to do so, indeed. But, Herbert, did he mention any other important fact that you have not yet communicated to us?' "'No, ma'am. Did he allude to any previous acquaintance with us?' "'No, ma'am, unless it might have been in the words I repeated to you. There was nothing else.' except that he bade me hurry to you, and make you glad with his message, and return as soon as possible to let him know whether you accept his offers. Accept them, accept them, of course I do. I have waited for them for years. Oh, children, you gaze on me as if you thought me mad. I am not so, nor can I now explain myself. For since he has not chosen to be confidential with Herbert, I cannot be so prematurely. But you will know all when Herbert shall have borne back my message to Major Warfield." It was indeed a mad evening in the cottage, and even when the little family had separated and retired to bed, the two youths, lying together as formerly, could not sleep for talking, while the widow on her lonely couch lay awake for joy. End of chapter 9